It's good to see the church family today on a Saturday. And it's roughly 1.30 in the afternoon. Welcome to session number five, otherwise known as siesta time. This is probably one of the hardest preaching sessions, right? After you've had a belly full of uh, pizza and you've had your hearts filled with the Word of God. Um, we are in Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to spend most of our time, Matthew chapter 18. So please take your copy of the Word of God, Holy Scripture, and turn there. And while you're turning there, I, I just want to thank quickly um, Pastor Travis for ministering to my soul through music. Thank you, brother, for being here. I want to thank Pastor Robert Briggs for being here. Brother, I know it takes a lot to be from, away from your wife and kids, and brother, you have ministered to my soul through the preaching of the Word of God. And Pastor Corey, you know, I, I just want to say this real quick. This church has gone through a lot over the many, many years. And one of the things that this church has had a lack of is godly men who desire the office of overseer. And he was affirmed by the church last June to be one of the newest pastor elders, but he's been with us for 12 plus years and I've seen the hand of God just work in his life and grow him up and mature him in the faith and a love for Christ. And brother, what the Lord is doing in your life and in your ministry has been a great blessing to me. I mean, you're preaching on Friday night, ministered to my soul, and I'm very grateful to God for that ministry. And Pastor Vladimir, too, you know, he was affirmed by the church in June. And so what am I saying is the Lord is doing a mighty work. And I'm grateful to God for those who take the Word of God seriously. The question before us this afternoon is, what is the authority of the local church? The idea of authority in anything in today's culture is pushed back gone or pushed back against and jettisoned or rejected altogether. We live in a world and in a culture, a Genesis 3 fallen world where everybody loves to have full autonomy, independence, to do whatever they want at their perfect time and desire. But the problem is, is this mindset of full autonomy has crept into our churches in many places around the country and around the world. And we see this when people decide to join the church and decide to leave the church when the ink on their paper to be a confirmed member is not even dry yet. They've left. They leave for all sorts of unbiblical reasons, like resigning their membership when there is no biblical reason to do so. Or we see this based off of just personal feelings. And we get that all the time. And they're really making decisions off of what their sinful heart really wants. But the question stated another way is this. Does the local church have the authority to discipline Christians who are in grievous sin and refuse to repent? So the topic that's set before me, I don't know if I selected this topic, Pastor Corey, or if you guys were just being mean to me in assigning this this topic to me, but this is important. We need to answer this question. 
Because there's a lot at stake. And if we don't answer this question biblically, the church of Christ will suffer in a variety of ways. So why discipline? Well, if we take the modern era, their excuses are discipline is for those who are of an older tradition. It's weird. It's odd. To discipline people out of the church is unloving, ungracious, unkind, unchristian. Well, I'm hoping that today's message will challenge us to think biblically. So why discipline? Well, first, Philippians chapter 1 verse 20, talking about honoring the Lord's, honoring the Lord whether we're alive or dead, says this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We're to honor the Lord in life and in death. 1 Peter 1, verse 15, talks about being holy. And this is language of Leviticus 11. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. To be holy is to be consecrated, is to be set apart. It's God's otherness which implies God's wholeness and perfection. Only God is intrinsically holy. That's who he is. He doesn't become holy. He is holy. And by nature, he is majestic. He is awesome. He is pure. He is perfect. And the people of God, Israel, are to be holy. But Israel's holiness did not originate from themselves. It originated in their covenant relationship with the true and living God. So the standard for holiness and for living a holy life comes from our holy God. When the Bible speaks of holy objects or holy people or holy time, it refers to things that have been set apart, consecrated, or made different by the touch of God upon them. That's a quote from J.I. Packer. If you remember, Moses looks out in the distance as he's working in the day, and he sees a bush, but it's not on fire. Well, it is on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. So he goes to the bush, and then the Lord speaks. Remove your sandals, for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because God's holy presence is there. That's why it's holy ground. God dwells with his people and commands them to be holy. When we think about this, we have been saved by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And when the Lord ascended, he gave the Holy Spirit the Comforter, the Helper, God the Holy Spirit. When we think about this, this is amazing to think about, that God the Holy Spirit is within God's people, that He indwells us, that He fills us for those who are born again. They are to be holy. 
when we think about how we became holy. You didn't become holy because one day you decided to wake up on the right side of the bed and become holy. The reason that we are holy is because God gave us His one and only Son. His holy sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, His precious blood washed away our sins. Read Hebrews 9. Read Hebrews 10 about the greatness of Jesus and His atonement. Hebrews 9 talks about the blood of Christ is our redemption. Verse 11 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ secured for us, once and for all, an eternal redemption by his precious holy blood. That's why we're holy. And because now that we are saved by the Holy God and saved from the Holy God by the Holy Savior, now God in His Word commands us to be holy. Now why, Pastor Rolo, are you belaboring the point on being holy? Isn't session 5 talking about what is the authority of the local church? I'm answering the question. You cannot understand, we cannot understand the authority of the local church if we don't understand God. If you don't understand who God is, then you'll never understand what God requires. We must understand who God is. God is holy. And he commands his people to be holy. So I am answering the question for this session right now. But before I do so, I want... I need to define some terms. The church. What is the church? We've been throwing that around and we've been answering it off and on. But one definition of the church is this. Those called out of darkness. The church is viewed as an assembly or gathering of the elect. Those whom God calls out of the world, away from sin and into a state of grace. That definition comes from R.C. Sproul. I think that's an appropriate definition of the church. I do have a theory, Brother Robert, that he's a good Reformed Baptist now. I could be wrong, but I believe he is. So what is the church? The church is those who are called out of darkness and placed where? Into the light of Christ. So what is the local church? Well, Pastor Corey and other preachers have talked about this. The local church is a group of Christians, born-again Christians, who live in a local area, who've come together by God's grace, and they've covenanted to serve Christ and each other. They're a local church. How about authority? Authority is the right and the power to command, enforce laws, Exact obedience, determine, or judge. That entire definition applies to today's session. So where does the authority come from? 
Brother Robert answered that question for me. So thank you, Brother Robert, for that. It's from the head of the church. Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. He's the one who has authority. But when we think of Matthew 28, and I don't want to preach Pastor Ed's message for tomorrow, but I, I want us to quickly read through this. Matthew 28, and then we're going to go back to Matthew 18. Jesus says, all authority, not some, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 26, which we've read on and off throughout the conference, paragraph 4 states that the Lord Jesus is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, and government of the church is invested in the supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist that man of sin and son of perdition that exalted himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. I'm not going to belabor that point, but I just want us to understand that from the scripture and from the 1689 that Christ is the head of the church. Obviously, the scripture is the ultimate authority. And so the source of church authority is Christ the one who lived and died for the bride, for his people. He is the head. Now, Matthew chapter 18, it says this in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you let him be to you a gentile and a tax collector truly i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my, my name, there am I among them. So Matthew 18 gives us a model on how to deal with sin within relationships, specifically within Christian relationship, Christian to Christian, Christian brother to Christian brother, a Christian sister to Christian sister, or ultimately within the church. It's how to deal with sin. We are not talking about personal preferences. We're not talking about opinions. We're not talking about your favorite music or your favorite movie. We're talking about sin, not personal preferences. And in Matthew chapter 18, God in his kindness in Christ gives us a three-step process on how to deal with sin. That at each step is to remain 
private as much as possible. And at each step, if it's not resolved, then the circle gets bigger. More people know about it as the process moves forward. But I need to say this, but at no step in the process is the world to be notified of a church family affair. This is a church family affair when there's sin within the church. There's no reason to go into social media and tell all your best friends that First Baptist or any other church has a struggle, has a sin issue. They've excommunicated a brother or sister in Christ, and we want you to know about it. No, this is a church family affair. I, wanna, I don't want to preach, again, Pastor Ed's message, but I want to jump to step number Three. Step number three. And step number three is dealing with what happens when we've gone through step one, there's no resolution. Step two, there's no resolution. Now we're at step three. We've got to tell it to the church. This person refuses to repent of sin. And I'm going to address sin, what kinds of sin that get to this type of level. But if he refuses to repent, he's not willing, she's not willing to humble themselves, admit to their sin, if there is sin, and confess that sin and repent of that sin, then you're to tell the church. The question becomes, who is the church? Can we just grab any bystander walking down the sidewalk and pull them into a members meeting and say, dear friend, dear neighbor, dear community person, please help us in making a decision about excommunication. That makes no sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. I cannot go to Pastor Robert's church, and he cannot come to this church and say, hey, I want to be involved in the process, right? Now, we can consult. There's nothing wrong with Christian consulting and pastoral consulting. There's nothing wrong with that. But who is the church? Because the Lord Jesus gives a command He is the king of the church. He is the head of the church. And he tells his people what they are to do. And I've already mentioned what a local church is. The church is the local church who has covenanted together as a certain body of believers in a certain place. And they are to notify not all the churches. They are to notify the local church where the sin is happening. Why? Because this person would not repent at steps one and two. Now the church has to step in and be involved. So we're not talking about, again, personal preferences, but we're talking about sin. The person refuses to repent of their sin. And therefore, this person is to be treated as a Gentile and tax collector. The Jews considered the Gentiles as heathens and pagans those who are outside of the community, those who are far off. And tax collectors are revenue officers, and Jews considered them to be traitors and outcasts. Why? Because they worked for the Roman government, collecting more than they should in order to give to the government, and then they would pocket the difference. And they made a very good living off of that, and they were considered traitors. So what does it mean to, to treat this person who refuses to repent of their sin to treat them as a Gentile and tax collector, it means that we're to cut off all fellowship with that person. 
Ouch. Pastor Rolo, that sounds unloving, ungracious, unkind. But who's speaking in the text? The Lord. The Lord says we need to do it. It is safe for us. It is good for us. It is right and proper of us to obey the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All fellowship is to be cut off from this impenitent person. He's to be disciplined out of the church or excommunicated. So, what, I hope you've been paying attention to what's been happening throughout this whole conference. You cannot excommunicate or discipline somebody out if they were never in. In other words, there's a defining line that has to be crossed from darkness into light, and I'll address that line here in a minute, but to go from darkness to light, something had to happen. And so now, the church is defined. What defines the church? Well, we need to first ask this question. What type of sins would get to the level of excommunication? What kind of sins require church discipline? Because if we discipline Every single person in the church for every single sin, guess what? Pastor Rolo's not here and you're not here. We would have no church if we disciplined for every single sin from every single person. We'd have no church at all. We need to be be reminded that we are sinners saved by God's grace and that the atonement that God provides through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same, same atonement that we need. And we cannot relinquish or forget. Christ is our atonement. So we need to establish that all sin is wrong. All sin is evil and wicked. Sin is defined as a violation of God's holy law and will. And so, therefore, all sin requires discipline, but not always at the level of excommunication. One reformer says it like this, quote, Some sins are worse than others in that they have more harmful consequences in our lives and in the lives of others. And in terms of our personal relationship to God as Father, they arouse His displeasure more and bring more serious disruption to our fellowship with Him. He's saying there are certain sins that if it goes unchecked, it's going to spread like cancer. It's going to affect the church body. And when the church body gets infected, they're going to get sick, weak, ill and eventually die unless this is dealt with properly and biblically. So what type of sins are we talking about? We're talking about sins that are done willfully. Sins that are done repeatedly. Sins that are done knowingly with a calloused heart. We know what sin is. You don't even have to come into church to know what sin is. But By God's grace, we're in the church. We know that sin is a violation of God's holy law and God's holy will. And so sins that are done willfully, repeatedly, knowingly, with a calloused heart, those are the sins that we're dealing with that would 
raised to the level and warrant excommunication if it's not repented of. Especially egregious sin is the sin of unrepentance. When there is knowingly sin in the body and that sin is confronted, the person is confronted in love and grace and kindness, and the person refuses to repent, they're prideful. They're to be humble, but they're not. And so we're dealing with those who do this type of sin with a calloused heart. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, talks about this type of sin and what the church is supposed to do. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. The Apostle Paul says this to the church. When you, talking about you all, when you all are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In the Corinthian church, they were tolerating a specific sin, a sexual sin. The sexual sin was so gross and disgusting that even the Gentiles know that it's wrong, but yet a group of people called Christians in Corinth were allowing a man to have sexual relationships, incestuous relationship with the mother or stepmother. And so they're not doing anything about this sin. You know, if we see a brother and sister who's trapped in a knowing, repeated, calloused heart type of sin, and we don't snatch them out of the fire, so to speak, do we really love them? The answer is no. But the natural reaction is, well, Pastor Ola, that's their private life. This is our church life. Sunday is our church Christian life. Monday through Saturday is their personal private time life. Do you think we should do this? What does the Word of God say? If you love God's people and they're in sin, you don't have to be a pastor to do this. You just have to be a Christian who believes in God's Word. And yet this church is doing nothing to deal with this. And so what does the Apostle Paul say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says, church, assemble. Right? The church is the church, and something special happens in the church when the church comes together. A church automatically means people are congregating. To be dispersed throughout a city in a valley does not mean you are the gathered, visible church. That means you're a Christian. But when the church comes together, there is something special there. And the Apostle Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, there's this sexual, incestuous sin that even Gentiles know that's wrong. They don't do that. And yet you allow him to come into here and do this. He says, hand this man over to Satan. It means excommunicate him. 
Cut off the fellowship. Treat him as a Gentile and tax collector. Why? So that this man's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The idea here is that once fellowship is cut off, he's no longer to be treated as a brother and sister in Christ. Then the hope is that this person would be convicted of their sins by the Holy Spirit. That God would deal with this person. That this person would repent of their sin, humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, and trust in Christ and obey Him and obey His word. And so it's for the purpose of this man's salvation if he repents. The goal is repentance and reconciliation. That's the goal of church discipline. That's the goal of excommunication. Repentance and reconciliation. So the church is to assemble and to make a godly decision regarding this sin, this man who refuses to repent. Eight verses later in the first chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, don't worry about those who are non-Christians, those who are outside of the community of the faith. Worry about the inside. Deal with the sin on the inside. Purge this person. Get him out. Because if you don't, he's going to contaminate everyone. Instead of influencing them for Christ, to allow the sin is to influence them to do evil. Purge this evil person from among you. Get rid of this person. Exclude him. Separate him. And in our flesh, we think that is so unloving. According to whose standard? According to whose standard is that unloving? Because it is unloving to let the person live in their sin. The loving thing to do is to snatch them out. That's what love is, based on God's word for the brother and sister in Christ. So God will deal with the sins of non-Christians, but the church is to deal with the sins on the inside. That's why we read Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. The reason I read through that is because of this. This is where it gets very, very controversial. Because we all would agree, if you've read and studied Matthew 18, that step one, step two, step three is in the Bible. It's biblical. Step three is uncomfortable, but we need to do that. But when we get to verse 18, things get a little controversial because in verse 18, the language is binding and loosing. And what many well-meaning people, even Christians, take that language and they misapply it to exorcisms. Binding and loosing the devil, binding and loosing the demon, binding and loosing this evil spirit. That's a wrong way to read this text. Remember, what's the context? The context is their sin in relationships, Christian relationships. Their sin in Christian churches. That's the context. It's not about binding and loosing the devil and the demons. 
the church needs to deal with sin. So in verse 18, it says this, Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. To be more exact and more technically, he's talking to his apostles. And he's saying that when two of you agree about the issue of what? The sin that's in the church. Then the Lord Jesus is among them. You know, when we read that verse and we quote Bible verses where two or three, there am I in the midst of them, most well-meaning Christians apply that to the context of prayer. So then in my theological brain here, it says, well, God can't hear our prayer if we're by ourselves? Because you've got to have two or three with you? No, it's a misappropriation, misapplication of this verse. We're talking about discipline. We're talking about sin in the church. We're talking about this language in Matthew 18 of binding and loosing. What does that mean? Because that has caused a lot of confusion in the American evangelical church. It's used and abused in many circles. So please turn with me to Matthew 16. Because that same language is there. Matthew 16. The Lord Jesus is talking to the Apostle Peter. In Matthew 16, verse 18, it says this. Or 16, verse 19, I'm sorry. I will give you. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus will give you, talking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Doesn't that sound like Matthew 18? That sounds exactly like Matthew 18. But we need to understand the context of Matthew 16. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. He's talking to his disciples. This is known in verses 13 through 20 of Matthew 16. This is known as the Caesarea Philippi Confession. And the, in, in the Lord Jesus asks the disciples a very important question. Question. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And you remember Jesus' answer or the apostles' answer? They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. The others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then all of a sudden in verse 15, it flips. Because why now that question is applied directly to the apostles? Jesus turns the question to them and he says to them, but who do you? That's second person plural. That means you all. But who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That has echoes, does it not, of Psalm chapter 2? It has echoes of 2 Samuel 7, 14. This is about the 
anointed king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And in verse 17, after Peter gives that accurate confession, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, I didn't reveal this to you. No other human being has revealed this to you. The church didn't reveal this to you. Well, who revealed this to Simon Peter? But my Father, who is in heaven. And I tell you, referring to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter in Greek is Petras, and the word rock is Petra. And so there's this Greek word interplay here of Petros and Petra, Peter and the rock. And Jesus says, I will build whose church? My church, Jesus' church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the rock? Because this is where it gets controversial. What is this rock that Jesus is referring to? There are at least four explanations about the rock. I don't have time to go into all four explanations. As a wise preacher once says, everybody has the right to be wrong. And so I'm just going to cut to the chase. The context, remember, Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, who do the people say I am? And then he changes the question, but who do you say that I am? And it's this. Simon Peter's confession is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. Simon Peter's confession is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession is the rock. This was revealed to Peter. Not by any other person, but by God himself. And so who is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about those who hold to the same confession that Peter holds to. That Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is building his church through the same profession. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot that is implied in that verse. But it's talking about the person who sees God clearly as holy who sees themselves properly, that they're sinful, that they deserve God's holy wrath upon them. And yet in God's grace and kindness and mercy, God gives the Savior, the anointed one, the King. And this person says, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one that God has promised. He's the son of the living God, and I trust him. I don't trust anybody else. I don't trust the church. I don't trust the pastor. I don't trust my brother and sister in Christ for salvation, that is. I trust Jesus. So, it's this profession that Peter has stated. 
Jesus says, I, Jesus, tell you, Peter. And on this rock, this solid confession of who Jesus is, I will build my church. He's building local churches. He's building this church through that same confession. He's building the universal church through that same confession. Jesus says in verse 19, And I will give you, Peter, I, Jesus, will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Not that it could be any more challenging, but now Jesus adds another element to this. He says, I'll give you the keys, Peter, to the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But what are the keys of the kingdom? Well, what are keys supposed to do? We all have keys. I got keys. I got so many keys on me, I feel like a janitor sometimes, right? And if you're a janitor, no offense. But I got a key to every room, right? But a key is to what? Open and lock. Open the door, lock the door. That's what keys are for. And so when we look at this text, what are the keys? There's an identical metaphorical language in Isaiah. Isaiah 22, 22. You're going to need to write this down. If you're going to connect Matthew 16, Matthew 18, you're going to have to connect it to Isaiah 22 because it's the same metaphorical language. Because in Isaiah 22, 22, it says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And what is this person going to do with this key? He shall open, and none shall shut it. And he shall shut, and none shall open. In Isaiah 22, there's an oracle of judgment against Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem trusted in Babylon when the Assyrians were in control. They didn't trust in the Lord. And now the Assyrians have left the area, and Jerusalem rejoices, but they do so prematurely. They did not look to the Lord for help. They didn't even ask the Lord for help at that point. And at that point, their leader was Shebna. Shebna was a weak leader over God's people. Shebna focused on himself instead of the people of God. And so God is going to replace Shebna. Why? Because he's a terrible king. And this happens in 701 B.C. And who does, who does he replace Shebna with? A person by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim. He's a special servant of God. Eliakim has the office of the king, the authority of the king. He actually wears the clothes of the king. He is to bless the Lord's people. He is to be a godly leader. He is to bring honor to the throne and to the kingdom. We all know this. As the king goes, so does the nation. And so Eliakim has replaced Shebna. And in verse 22, God will place a key on the shoulder of Eliakim. Remember, keys are to open and close. Lock and unlock. One of the Old Testament scholars by the name of Matyer, J.A. Matyer, he states this, quote, contextually and culturally, a key denotes the power to make and enforce binding decisions. That's important. 
a key denotes the power to make and enforce binding decisions. So when we connect Matthew 16, which we just read, with Isaiah 22 regarding the keys, it means that Jesus in Matthew 16 is giving Peter the keys. And what does it mean to give him the keys? He's giving him authority. Authority. And when we get to Matthew 18, which I read, that authority now spreads to the church. To exercise what? To exercise the keys. What are the keys? The keys are the authority given to the church for the kingdom. To exercise the keys to the kingdom is to exercise authority in the kingdom. Think about it like this. Opening and closing doors to the kingdom. We're not talking about how someone gets saved. We're not talking about who has the authority and the power to change the heart of a sinner. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something different. We're talking about the kingdom of God. How does the church exercise kingdom authority? And here it is. Matthew 16, verse 19. How does the church exercise kingdom authority? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is building his church on the same confession and profession as Simon Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when we look at this language of binding and loosing, it has to do with admitting somebody into the kingdom or into the local church, right? A group of Christians in the local church is about admitting them into the church, this language of binding and loosing. So when somebody makes a reliable profession of faith, they are admitted into a local gospel-centered church not because I say so, or Pastor Travis, or Pastor Robert says so, is because the church has the authority to do so. And I know that's foreign, because many times we don't hear this. This is weird, it feels weird, it looks weird, but it's biblical. It's biblical. It's about admitting someone into membership of a local church. Now, if you don't like the word membership, okay, fine. I'm not willing to die on that hill. But something official has to happen in order for a person who says, I'm a believer and a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I'm covenanting with you to serve Christ together and serve you as my brother and sister in Christ. Something official has to happen. So we're just using the word membership, whether you like that word or not. Membership has a negative connotation. Costco membership, Sam's Club membership, gym membership. You pay money, you get what you want, and then what you don't want, you move on. That's not what we're talking about. So, when somebody makes a reliable profession of faith, they're admitted into the membership of a local church, and when the local church affirms that profession of faith, that is called binding. Okay, so let me explain it like this. Does Pastor Rolo have the authority to accept members? The answer is no. Now, Pastor Ed, for the most part, does all the new member interviews. 
He's trying to find out if they're Christian or not. And then once he's done his due diligence, we come together as pastors, and he says, I think this person provides a reliable profession of faith. Are we in agreement? And once we're in agreement, then we take it to a members meeting. And we say, members of this church, First Baptist, we're presenting person A to you. They provide a liable profession of faith. And so when the church says, I affirm, then the church is exercising the keys to open the doors of the local church for this person to be a member. I'm not talking about regeneration. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And so when a church decides to reject a person's profession of faith through biblical church discipline, why? Because they, this person says, I don't want to repent. I love my sin. I don't really care. Uh, I don't really feel bad about it. I want to live my life my own way. So then when it gets to step three and the church knows about it, we tell it to the church. This person, the church reaches out to this person. Brother, sister, please repent. Come back to Christ. Come back to your first love. And they say, no, I want my sin. Then the church says, this person's profession of faith is not reliable. Therefore, we are loosing. Loosing means we are excommunicating. We are disciplining this person out of the local church, a gospel-centered local church. We are saying, this person's profession, there's no fruit. This person doesn't want to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. They want to live for themselves. They want to live for sin. And so as a church, we cannot allow people to be members of a church when they're not Christian and they're not living a Christian life and they have zero desire to be holy. That's why I started off with the holiness of God. Because if we don't understand who God is and that he is holy and that he desires and commands his church to be holy, be holy for I am holy. The church is to be holy. And when this person says, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to repent, church has an obligation and responsibility to excommunicate this person out of the church. And when they do, it's not because Pastor Rolo is a meanie. Pastor Ed is a meanie. No, it has nothing to do with that. But it has everything to do with the glory of Christ in the church. And so when the church affirms, the church affirms this person's profession is not reliable, there's no fruit, they're excommunicated, that's loosing. When we affirm their profession is reliable, we're binding. When we say this person's profession is no longer reliable, we're loosing. That's what we're doing as a church. Again, I understand it, it feels weird, it sounds weird. We haven't taught on this. Right? We, we practically do it, but we haven't done a good job of teaching this. We know that God is all-knowing. Ultimately, he knows which professions are legitimate and which professions are false. But again, we're not talking about regeneration. We're talking about professions of faith. Most of you know I'm back in the military. 
serving God as a Navy Baptist chaplain. I'm in uniform. It's a wonderful blessing to wear the country's uniform all over again, but it comes with a heavy price and responsibility. But if I told you, dear family, and dear brother and sister in Christ, that, you know, I, I am a proud member of the U.S. Navy, and I go wear the uniform of China 24-7, and that's the only uniform you see me in, would you believe that when I said I'm a proud member of the U.S. Navy? You would say no. Why? Because you're wearing another person's uniform. You're not with us, you're there. Same idea with profession of faith. If you say you're a follower of Christ, then there should be fruit that comes from that. We're not saying you're living a perfect life, practically speaking, but there has to be biblical fruit. And if not, then we have to do what God has called us to do in his word. One one reformer says it like this, Christ Jesus has given his church the authority to admit people into membership and to judge a person within the body of Christ based on the truths of Scripture, not based on personal preferences, based on the truths of Scripture and that person's adherence or lack thereof to the proclamation of the gospel. If we say we believe in the gospel, should that affect the way we live? The answer is yes. And the church has the authority to receive those who provide a reliable profession of faith, but the church also has the authority to loose those from the church who have violated their profession of faith and refused to repent. But what happens when the person, they've been excommunicated, God convicts them, and we praise God for that, they're convicted of their sin, they're humbled, and they want to make things right with their previous church. And, they, and this person says, I want to be back in the fellowship. Should we accept them? Well, the word of God is not silent on this. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6 says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Many people believe this is the same person in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, by the majority. The majority of who? The church. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. When a person humbles themselves and they desire to do what's right, we are to bring them back. That's the Christian thing to do. So the church has the authority to receive members. The church has the authority to excommunicate. The church also has the authority to receive those after excommunication, assuming they repent. So we're to restore them back into fellowship. You know, one of my professors uh, at Southern Seminary by the name of Dr. Gregory Wills, he wrote a book called Democratic Religion. And this book really changed my mindset or my paradigm, what I thought about church discipline. But the book was dealing with freedom, authority, and church discipline in the Baptist South. And this is dealing with the years of 1785 to the 1900s. So that 115-year period of time. And in that book, he makes a really amazing statement. 
He said churches during that time frame would excommunicate roughly 1.5% of their membership yearly. So if you have a church of 100 people who are covenanted, part of the official role, one to two people would be excommunicated. Why? Because they took the holiness of God seriously. They took the holiness within the church seriously. And they would excommunicate people at a rate of 1.5% per year for what type of sins? Remember I said earlier, the visible sin, knowing sin, egregious sin. They would excommunicate for adultery. We've done that in the past in this church. They also did it for drunkenness. Why? Because this person who claimed to be a follower of Christ drank too much, drunk, is now in the town's public square, and now they're dragging Christ's name through the mud and bringing reproach upon his name. But also they would excommunicate for non-attendance at the church. That is something that is desperately lacking in the American church. Like everybody wants to join the membership just like a gym, just like Sam's Club, Costco. But before the ink is dry on the paper, they have left. They don't want to attend. And so normally our habit is, well, we've reached out to them. They don't contact us back. We just let them go. And what we're actually doing is we're letting them go on good terms. When in reality, Christian oaths and Christian vows matter in the Bible. It matters to the Lord. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is of the evil one. That is the proper interpretation. So Christian oaths, Christian vows matter. So when somebody says, I'm a follower of Christ, I have covenanted and promised to serve Christ and serve you, my brother and sister in Christ, and then he takes off and we never see them for months. Pastor Corey, I think we should talk about this. Excommunicating for non-attendance. Pastor Rolla, that sounds mean. Well, are they part of the fellowship or not? Because to be part of the fellowship automatically means there's a certain duty and responsibility. And when excommunication happened in 1785 to the 1900s, even though they were losing people every year at that rate, God blessed the church. Why did God bless the church? Is because the church took holiness seriously. They took holiness seriously. They said, we're Christians, we're to act, talk, live a certain way. And if we don't, then there's something desperately wrong. Again, the church has the authority to receive members, dismiss those who make a false profession or those who refuse to repent of sin. But also the church has the authority to receive or readmit those who repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So why should we discipline? Because the Bible says so. That should be good enough. Why should we discipline? Because the Apostle Paul says so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says that. Better yet, Jesus says that. And hopefully, it's to restore the erring Christian, to protect the church from further sin. But ultimately, we enact church discipline. Why? 
is for the glory of God. His church is not an organization. His church is an organism. An organism lives or dies. And it lives when it's living properly. So, as I wrap up, what if, think about this for a second. What if all the gospel-centered churches in Las Vegas or on the West Coast or in this nation would take seriously and apply biblical church discipline? What would happen? I think, Brother Robert, there would be a mini-revival. Regenerate church discipline, right? We would see who loves the Lord and who doesn't. What if we all walked in holiness and purity as individuals when we separate from this place and as a congregation when we come together? What if we all walked in holiness and purity as a body of believers? What if we showed our love for Christ instead of the world by holding each other accountable to live a holy life? Where would the church be? How would we live? How would we grow? What would be our witness to our neighbors, our co-workers, our family? If we all decided we're going to live intentionally holy lives for Christ's glory, how would the world look at us? You know, when the world says, the church is full of hypocrites, we all know what we want to say, right? We have room for one more. Come on, come join us. But we've got to be careful with that language. Right? We are people saved by God's grace. And while we are living this side of heaven, by God's grace, we will sin. But there's a difference between Christians who are born again and they sin, and when they sin, their heart is tenderized by the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. They say, I can't do this. I can't live this way. I can't talk this way. And I repent all over again. I trust in Jesus all over again. Versus the one who always lies or sins and it doesn't bother them one lick. There's a difference there. The world would look at us in a much different way. But ultimately we do this for God's glory. God's honor. So I would say this as I wrap up. The gospel-centered church has the authority to affirm a profession excommunicate a false profession and receive again a person who repents and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've heard a hard word, but it's your word. And we thank you, O God, that you are not silent on this issue, that your word is authoritative and sufficient. It is enough. Help us as your people to live lives that are holy and pleasing in your sight. Lord, this is your church. You are the head of the church. You bled and died for the church. Lord, we are your people by your grace. Help us to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.